Well, do keep your Bibles open uh, to Isaiah 63. This awesome passage bursts suddenly onto the pages of Isaiah's prophecy. Its suddenness is deliberate, as deliberate as Judgment Day itself. In some ways, we shouldn't be surprised if you've been following the story so far. You'll know that Isaiah has been spending time to describe the forever future that God is preparing for his people. His description of that future is extravagant in its beauty. It is a delightful future. The final day of the Lord will spell joy and ultimate satisfaction for all of his people. But that is only half the story. We know that the human search for utopia is as old as humanity itself. Uh, We might want to say that it's an echo, perhaps a racial memory of Eden. People want a paradise. They want somewhere and some place where problems are resolved, where questions are answered, where people live together in harmony and love. The Puritans who left persecution in England to come to New England thought that by a shift of geographical location, they would build themselves a a shining city on a hill. Well, that was a great goal, but circumstances, enemies, and then their own fallen human nature contrived to destroy their vision. Marx and Engels convinced themselves that Greed and oppression were the result of faulty economics. So, if you force a revised, a new system of economics on the people, then eventually people would work together happily for the common good. Well, we know where that left. People, 40 million people dead in the Soviet Union. So, here's the question. As the prophet Isaiah paints this picture of what he calls New Zion, a new community, a new Jerusalem, a society of people who know God, who is not to say that New Zion might not go the way of old Jerusalem? Who is not to say that once this paradise of God is in place, that there may not be enemies without or within, enemies external to New Zion or enemies that come by natural impulse from the hearts of those who are part of New Zion. Who's to say that its very life, its very paradise will not be threatened from within? And in many ways, the purpose of this passage that we've read is to tell you that God is going to take every measure necessary to ensure that every enemy, both from the exterior and the interior, from outside and inside, will be destroyed in order that New Zion might be a secure and safe place for eternity. That's an important, vital thing to get our heads around as we start. Now, there are words here, for those of you who have been following, that are key words that are used already in the prophecy of Isaiah, 
The reference to garments and righteousness and salvation and redemption and anger and wrath and vengeance, those are all words you'll find elsewhere. So we're, on the, we're still on the trajectory of this message that Isaiah is passing along to us. And what we've seen so far is that everything the God of Israel does, everything the Lord God of Israel is about in the world, He does and is about through His Messiah, the Messiah, His anointed one, who in the book of Isaiah, if you take it as a whole, is a son and a servant. He is a son with a divine nature and a divine origin way back in eternity, and he is a servant who in the posture that he takes while he is on earth serves God. And he serves God and he serves people with salvation. So at the end of chapter 62, if you'll glance down at your Bible just before the beginning of 63, at verse 11 of the previous chapter, Isaiah brings to a conclusion his description of that new Zion and what God is doing. And he says this, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. Now that's the word that is on the minds now. You understand of the prophet and on our mind as we wait and look for this salvation. And in chapter 63, it's like a watchman on the wall, staring out into the horizon, looking for the salvation that God has promised to come. And there, in the distance, moving towards him, the prophet who is our spokesman this morning sees a figure moving deliberately towards him. And he asks the question, two questions. The whole passage hangs on these two questions. Who is this? Who is this? And why are your clothes in such a mess? Who is this? The prophet has been looking for the salvation to come, and he sees this figure coming towards him, and there is something instantly recognizable in this figure to the prophet. He is, he tells us, splendid in his apparel. There is something of grandeur and majesty, distinctiveness and authority about this figure. Splendid, grandeur, grandeur, majesty. This is no ordinary person. He is coming with deliberate bearing, marching in the greatness of his strength. Here is no hint of weakness or timidity. He has the bearing of a victorious warrior coming back from battle. And if you've been following the episodes so far, you'll know that we were introduced to a warrior just a few chapters earlier. The warrior God coming to rescue his people. The warrior God going out to fight his people's enemies. And as Isaiah, on our behalf, is on the city walls, looking into the horizon and sees this figure coming towards him, it looks like this warrior God coming towards him. He's coming determinedly. He's coming 
with force. He's coming deliberately. He's marching in the greatness of his strength, in the victory that he has accomplished. Who are you? asks the prophet. Who is this that comes from Edom? And listen to the reply he receives. It is I. The language that this individual, this figure uses is language we've come across already in this prophecy of Isaiah back in chapter 43, verse 25. I, I am he. That phrase is used over and over and over again in Isaiah. The Lord Jesus picks up that phrase, I, I am he. When he refers to himself as I, I am. I, I am he who blots out your transgression, says the Lord. And that phrase is used here. It is I, I, I am. It is the language of divine self-predication. This is God talk. This is God's speech. And you notice how he identifies himself further. Not only it is I, you've heard of me before, you've met me before. It is I speaking. Wherever in the Bible we find God, you find God speaking. And wherever you find God in the Bible speaking, God speaks in, by, through his Son, who is his Word, the Word of God. So when God speaks in the beginning at creation, it is the Word that he speaks and the Word brings creation into being. God always speaks in, by, through His Son. The Father speaks through the Son. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. That's why we gather in church like this and we listen because God speaks to us. And wherever His Word is opened, wherever the Bible is preached, God is speaking to His people. He wants you to hear what He is saying. And He always speaks through Christ to our hearts. He speaks through His Son to our minds. He is the speaking God. And He speaks in righteousness. One of the things that Isaiah painted, one of the pictures he painted, is of the unrighteousness that characterizes so much of the world and, from the perspective of Isaiah, the church of God itself. Unrighteousness. When describing the church back in chapter 59, he talks about truth having stumbled in the public squares and truth lacking in the church. So what does God do about it? Well, God saw it, we're told, back there in chapter 59. When God saw it, it displeased him, and he saw there was no man, no one to intercede, no mediator, no one to get in between God who's offended and man who is the offender, no one who will stand in the gap. And so God goes on to say, then his own arm, or or, or it's said of God, his own arm brought him salvation. His own righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. I said that when God speaks, his voice is heard through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Here I want to say that whenever God acts, he acts 
through his Son in the power of the Spirit. Because in chapter 61, we find the Messiah anointed by the Holy Spirit. And here he comes onto the scene and he says this, He, God, has clothed me in garments of salvation and covered me with robes of righteousness. So when we see this figure coming towards us, what are we to understand? This is the God of Israel on the move. And whenever the God of Israel is on the move, God is on the move through His Son, the Messiah, the Son's servant who has come into the world to speak in righteousness while everyone else is speaking nonsense. If you want an illustration of that, turn on the news and listen. Speaking nonsense. When the people who want our attention are talking nonsense. And when often they are talking unrighteousness. They are saying things that are not right. Whenever God speaks, what He says is absolutely right. Because it is a demonstration of His character. It tells us what God is like. What He says demonstrates what He is in Himself. And do you know what's on his mind? He comes in righteousness, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is the key to understanding these six verses. That what God has come to say and to do, however hard it is for you to bear, however difficult it is for you to compute with your mind, his purpose, his intention, the underlying driving motivation of his action is to save His people. So who are you? Who are you? I am the Lord God of Israel. I am the Lord God of Israel working through my son's servant, the Messiah. I have come in righteousness, doing what is right, thinking what is right, speaking what is right, and I have come to rescue my people. There's the answer to the first question. Question two. Why are your clothes in a mess? Why is your apparel red, your garments? Like someone who has been in the wine press, trampling out the grapes and gotten yourself in quite a state. I was out mowing the lawn yesterday. I came in and there was grass all over my good pants and my very best sweater. It just came all, came all over me. I got into trouble. <laughs> well, that's a picture that we have painted here. So the question is, how did you get like that? I thought it was a good answer to say I'd been mowing the lawn, but apparently that wasn't a good enough answer. (laughs) Well, what's the answer we get here? Look at this. Why is your apparel red? Well, the answer tells us, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Here is the God of Israel in the person of his son, servant, the Messiah, saying that he has been out fighting the enemies of God. He started at that nation that was closest to home, to the Israelite, to the Jew, Edom. There was a geographically contingent relationship with Edom, and there there was a genetic connection with Edom. Edom represented everything that was in rebellion against God, everything that was close to me that was in rebellion against God. Edom Edom 
represents sin as close as it gets to home. But sin as it represents everything that is as far from home as you can imagine. Everything that is opposed and is in rebellion against God. And I want you to see what God says here in Christ. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. God is not cool about sin. God is not unmoved and indifferent to human rebellion. God is not Aristotle's unmoved mover. The God of the Bible is a God who is full of anger and wrath against sin. You need to know that that does not stop. That that goes on right to the end of the human story. And that at the end of the human story, that anger and wrath against sin will be demonstrated before a watching universe in its final, most dramatic, and most terrifying conclusion. In verse 4, we have an explanation. The day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. You notice the connection again, just as we said at the beginning. Why, why is he on the move? Well, he's on the move primarily to rescue his people, to redeem them, to pay the price to get them back, to, to pay the debt they owe. And we saw the Messiah doing that in chapter 53 as he bears our sins in his own body, as he receives the punishment that was due to us for our trans- transgressions, as he is punished in my place, as he carries my responsibility for my sin himself and is crucified, dead, and buried. That's how far he will go to deal with the sin problem. But here we're told something else, that the day of vengeance is connected to the year of redemption, inseparably. That judgment day is absolutely crucial for salvation day. That without judgment day, you may be tentative about how secure your rescue and your salvation are. It's a very vital connection. You need to see that this is underlined in this passage. It is at the heart of this passage. Back in chapter 61, the Messiah had announced his agenda. And, as he, uh, and the Lord Jesus picks that up when he reads from Isaiah, Isaiah, or whatever. I've been doing this so long now, I forget which one is which. Let me translate it. Uh, English is Isaiah, and we're in Isaiah here. Okay. Uh, Jesus, on, when he's in Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue one day. The synagogue leader gives him a scroll to read. He gets the scroll. He starts to read it. It's Isaiah 61. And as he's reading his own agenda, the agenda for his ministry, you remember, he reads it, and he stops halfway through a sentence. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was absolutely vital. He closed the scroll right there. The Gospels tell us why he closed the scroll right there. It's because in this period, this is a a year of God's favor. This is a year in which God is good. This This day, this moment that you have in this place, God is doing you a favor. 
He's letting you hear the gospel. He's letting you hear today that there's good news that you might escape the wrath to come. Good news that you may be right with God, right at this moment, that you may get right with God. That you may have eternal life. Today, that's the good news of the gospel. Christ died, Christ rose again, Christ is enthroned, and he did that in order that you might have eternal life. So that today, at this moment, you may know where you will be 10 billion years from this moment. That's the good news, the day of God's favor. But that isn't all that Jesus came to do. Isaiah completes it, of course. He gives us the whole reading, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, what Isaiah does is, in his exposition of that agenda, he puts a gap between describing the favor of God, which he's done now in chapter 62 and 60. Uh, the end of 61 and 62. And so now he's going back to part two of the Messiah's agenda, which is the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus, there is a gap in his life too. There's been 2,000 years since he announced the day of God's favor. That's good. But don't let that kid you on. Don't let that fool you into thinking that somehow or other he's forgotten part two of his work. He has not forgotten The length of time is the length of God's graciousness to the world in exposing the world to the gospel and in inviting men and women to come to Christ. The day of judgment will come. The day of vengeance. That's the word he uses here. The day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Why are those two things so important? Because I need to know in New Zion that sin has been once and for all finally and completely dealt with. That all the enemies of God, whether they are the enemies of God that rise up within my own fallen human nature or the enemies of God that come all around me in the culture and in the society, everything that is liable to make me prone to temptation or tempt me and lead me away from God, that all of those enemies have been finally and fully destroyed. I need to know that. God knows you need that too. Destroying those enemies is part of the package of salvation. You know, the Lord Jesus talks a lot about this himself in Matthew 13, for example. He talks about the wheat and the weeds in the church even, growing together. Both grow until the harvest, and at the harvest time I'll send in the reapers, and they'll gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles, and burn them. And he goes on to say this, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Brothers and sisters, we need to know before we enter the gates of New Zion finally for the last time to enjoy God forever that all causes of sin all causes of sin have been dealt with finally and forever. Judgment Day is crucial in the outworking of the redemption 
and the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. No biblical speaker knows of a day of salvation, therefore, without a day of judgment. Now, those are the two parts of the passage, but the key to the passage lies in verse 5. There's a hint of it. At the beginning of verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples that no one was with me. Verse 5 picks that theme up. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. Now, we've heard this language before, back in chapter 59, where God says, similarly, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There, God's contemplating the work of salvation. And as he contemplates the work of what it will take to save people and get them into heaven in the end and give them eternal life, he realizes, and this is put in human terms that we can understand, it's kind of accommodated to our understanding, but he realizes that there's no one else but him who can do the work. No one else but the mediator, the son's servant, the Messiah, to come in between the offended God and the offending human being. No one else. No one else can save. No one else can reconcile people to God but the mediator. Just as no one else can save us, no one else can judge us. No one else is qualified to judge. He saw there was no one to help, no one to intercede back in 59. Here there's no one to help, no one to uphold, that is uphold righteousness. So my own arm brought salvation and my wrath upheld me. God has to do it all himself. Now, here's the issue, of course. The issue is our helplessness, our weakness. We can't save ourselves, and we can't resolve the injustices and inequalities and the wrongs and the evils and the sins in the world. We can do neither of these two things. They're out with our control. So, God has to do the work himself. It's all of God. It's all of God. The day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So this vengeance, you see, of God's has nothing to do with hurt pride, but it's everything to do with the redemption and breaking the power of sin in order to set His people free, free at last, free at last. Now, you see much of this language in this chapter is picked up in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. There we read of the last day, we read of the day of judgment. And on that day of judgment, the John who is receiving this vision in Revelation says, he saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on that horse whose name was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. At the end, Jesus, our lovely Lamb of God, 
who is our dear Savior, is the judge. He comes to make war. Against what? Against sin and evil. Against sin and sinners. Against everyone who does not have a relationship with him, who is not marked with the blood of the Lamb because they believe in Christ as their Savior. John goes on to describe him. He's called the Word of God. The armies of heaven are with him. And he goes on to say this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the judgment day that's coming. It's part of our salvation. It has to happen before we can walk into New Zion and know now we are free, free at last. And that there is nothing, nothing that can ever intrude. Nothing can ever insinuate itself into New Zion. No terrorist can ever get in there to destroy the peace and facility of God's people. John goes on to describe that day of judgment like this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Now, you may be here this morning and you're saying, well, I really do not want to hear all about this business of judgment and justice. And yet, if you think about it, isn't it absolutely vital that there should be a judgment day? Just from our human perspective, you may have been abused. Your abuser has gotten off scot-free, which is a racist slur, by the way, on Scots, but it's an expression we use. The English... The English invented it. But seriously, it seems as if the abuser gets away with it. Or you think of the millions killed in the Holocaust. Are there murderers going to get away with it? Or the little abuses of power, the little things that go on in our lives. Is there never going to be a day of reckoning? for those things. If there is going to be no day of reckoning, then there is no moral coherence in the universe at all. This judgment day has as its plus side the fact that there will be an equitable distribution of punishment in hell that is appropriate to the crime, to the sin. In other words, the punishment of hell is not the same for everybody in hell. Hell is the same. But as Jesus said, some will be struck with more rods than others. Some will be punished more than others. Hell is a punishment. But within hell, there are degrees of punishment appropriate to the crime, the sin, the evil, in the life. Now let's come back to this. Here we are, Christian people, and we're not allowed to take 
revenge. Paul says, uh, beloved, never avenge yourselves. It's above your pay grade. You don't know enough. You can't be sure enough that you know the truth to therefore bring the right kind of vengeance down on somebody else. You wouldn't necessarily be appropriate in what you did or said. So what does Paul say? He says, leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the day of judgment. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You can trust him. You can trust him. And many a time in our lives we have to come to that place where injustices have been done, inequalities have been done. There are moments in our lives where we see things happen that they shouldn't have happened and we cannot put them right. And it is the believer who stands back, as it were, from those moments and says, but there will be a judgment day. And I will wait for them, for that moment. It's the believer who says in their heart, I can trust God to deal with these things. Uh, Professor Brever Childs of Yale University sums up this chapter in in this way. The crucial function of this chapter is to emphasize in the strongest manner possible that the divine judgment against evil and injustice of those in rebellion against God's rule must precede the entrance of God's appointed and promised kingship in the transformation of Zion. Judgment day has to happen so that we get that load off our minds and are able to enter Zion with the questions answered, the issues resolved, the judgment passed, and we secure secure forevermore. Now you say, is Jesus qualified to do that? He's qualified to do that because he's the one who poured out his soul to death. He's the one who was wounded for our transgressions. He's the one who had the punishment that brings us peace placed upon him. He's the only one we need. He's the only one who can bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word today. Some of it perhaps hard to get our heads around. Others of it perhaps uncomfortable. But we pray that you would take your word and that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to embrace, our wills to do whatever that word has to do to accomplish your purpose. We pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us now. We ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.